Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction, society, and everything else. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm the author of The Future of Another Timeline and the forthcoming book of science journalism called Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm the author of the upcoming young adult novel, Victories Greater Than Death. Ooh. So today we're going to talk about stories that bring real history into fictional stories that deal with monsters, magic, and the supernatural. What happens when you mix together actual historical facts with tropes about witches and demons? This is on our minds right now because it's something we're seeing a lot in recent pop culture, from the Lovecraft Country series, which we love, to Rebecca Roanhorse's new novel, Black Sun. So we're going to talk about that. And later in the episode, we'll be joined by the author P. Jelly Clark, who is the author of several historical novellas, including the forthcoming Ring Shout, which perfectly combines historical facts with amazing supernatural monsters. All right, here's the show. So, Anna Lee, I think it's really interesting that, you know, we've talked about historical science fiction and fantasy in the past on this show. And we've also talked about the idea of alternate history, which is often like if you change one thing, if like George Washington steps on a nail and like <laughs> gets gangrene and, you know, can't go across the Delaware or something, uh-huh. you know, how the world is different. But this is sort of an interesting kind of combination of those things where you have historical fiction or alternate history on top of the presence of magic or the supernatural or the kind of paranormal. And how do those things go together? It's really interesting. And I was thinking about how this is actually a tradition in historical writing that maybe even predates historical writing that's based on fact, because in the West, a lot of our mythology has to do with history. For example, if you look at something like the Odyssey or the Aeneid, these are histories of you know Greece and Rome and those civilizations that are all about gods and monsters. And so there's some real historical detail mixed together with a lot of other stuff that is probably not based in fact. <laughs> and then I think, you know, in the present day, we see it a lot in modern fantasies like, say, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clarke, or you might see it in Naomi Novik's Temeraire books. I brought up those books specifically because weirdly, they're both about the Napoleonic Wars. Right. I mean, obviously, both Clarke's book and Novik's work are really popular, and they bring magic into the Napoleonic Wars, and it changes the outcome Uh, especially in Naomi Novik's Temeraire books, where she reimagines battle strategies and tactics and how things would be different if everybody involved had giant dragons. Um, And so you have, for example, the Americas are not colonized by Europeans because they fight off the Europeans with their dragons. And so, and Australia has a really different history. And it's this way of thinking about 
real life history right alongside fantasy, and it can serve a lot of different purposes. Yeah. And another recent example that comes to mind, of course, is uh, Justina Ireland's amazing book, Dread Nation, in which the United States Civil War ends very differently because zombies show up. And I feel like that's actually a a whole trope into itself, like zombies in the Civil War, like Legends of Tomorrow also did that. And there's also Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, of course. But, you know, it's it's sort of an interesting thing of like, once you throw in the supernatural, you kind of inevitably end up with alternate history because the presence of magic or the paranormal ends up kind of deforming the shape of events or not deforming is probably the wrong word, perturbing, let's say perturbing the shape of events into a new shape. It also can play a an explanatory role. Um, I was thinking about Austin Grossman's book, Crooked, which is all about Nixon and how Nixon was actually deeply involved in a fight against cosmic horrors from another dimension. And it's sort of this weird, the book is a very weird character study of Nixon. And it's sort of reimagining his crimes and all of the problems that he had as sort of side effects of the fact that he's actually really his real job is like fighting demons from other dimensions. Yeah, it's like it's deforming history, but also explaining history. Right. And, you know, of course, part of what's interesting about Lovecraft Country is that it is not, as far as I know, an alternate history. It's just there are history but with the supernatural and the presence of the supernatural does kind of like illuminate how Jim Crow and white supremacy and all of these things are in themselves monstrous. And it sort of provides like a metaphor, but also kind of an amplification of that evil that is a real historical evil. So Emily, I guess what I'd like to ask you is, what can you say in a fantasy that takes place in real life history that you maybe couldn't say in like a fantasy that takes place in Westeros or Middle Earth or some other fantasy realm? Why should people set a monstrous or fantastical tale in real life history? It's a really good question because, as you said, I mean, you have lots of secondary world options. So why, you know, why try to restrict yourself? I always come back to this really interesting point that Tanana Reeve Du makes about how she she's very interested in the phenomenon of what she calls horror noir, which is basically black horror, and which is a long tradition in America. And she looks at it in film, and she feels like white supremacy is a horror movie and that to tell the true story of white supremacy in the United States requires you to actually follow the tropes of a horror narrative. And so she views a movie like Get Out, for example, as you know a perfect way of doing that, of sort of bringing this horrifying fantasy into a very realistic story And Jordan Peele, of course, was a producer on Lovecraft Country, which deals with a lot of the same themes. It's very firmly in the horror noir subgenre. And I think what it does is it provides a kind of emotional language to explain events that maybe we are all familiar with. You know, maybe, you know, if we know the kind of generic details of how Jim Crow worked or how slavery worked, It's easy enough to say like, oh, those are lines in history books, but to make audiences feel what it was like to be in that time, uh, to be in a black body under slavery or under Jim Crow requires monsters, I think. And so to set it in real life is to kind of 
give audiences an opportunity to see, all right, so here's what really happened. Um, for example, in Lovecraft Country, there's scenes where we see, you know, white people beating black people for no reason or uh, whites only uh, restaurants and how right, or sundown towns, sundown towns, which actually was a thing I didn't know about. So I learned new historical information, accurate historical information from watching what's a fan, what is basically a fantasy show. Um, the sundown towns was really scary. And at the same time, we see through the fantasy by seeing these monsters, by seeing these crazy cultists, we see what it feels like to be those characters. So, so basically, you could say that all of the monster and supernatural stuff is kind of the fantasy that people are having in their heads. And then all the other stuff is what's really going on. So it's kind of it gives you a chance if you want to read these as hyper realistic stories that also give us a window into our characters imaginations and how they're feeling. And I think in Lovecraft Country, they do a great job of signposting that at the very beginning of the series, which opens with this incredible dream sequence that's just bonkers, right? There's, you know, monsters and the war is happening. And there's like a hero with a baseball bat <laughs> killing the monsters. And it really immediately tells you, okay, this is a bonkers supernatural story, but also a lot of the most fantastical elements are in our dreams. And these are dreams that are responding to real traumas. It's interesting, Anna Lee, like, I don't know if you remember this, but the first couple episodes we watched of Lovecraft Country, we kind of debated amongst ourselves, is it a horror show or is it a thriller? Is it a fantasy adventure? And I feel like by the middle of the season, it's very obvious that there is a very strong horror element here and specifically body horror. And I would love to hear your thoughts more about how this show really kind of uses body horror to talk about the atrocities that are inflicted specifically on black bodies. It's super interesting. There's one episode in particular, um, as we record this, the season isn't over yet. So we don't we don't know how where it's all going. But uh, there's one episode where one of the characters gets a magic potion that turns her white. And the way that the potion works is that it's this very juicy, visceral, disgusting evocation of people ripping off their skins or having pieces of their skin like falling off as they transform. And especially when they when this character transforms from her white self into her black self. And there's just these like strips of like bloody white lady flesh, like dribbling off of her body. And it's very much about that sensation of not having any control over your body, not control, like not being able to control how people see you, not being able to have bodily autonomy, because of course, we see over and over again, uh, in reality, but also in the show, how black people are menaced by white people with guns and bats and batons and fists. And in many cases, they can't do anything about it because these are white people acting within the law, or these are white people who have a big gang of more white people behind them. And so over, again, over and over, I think that these body horror images evoke that sensation of having essentially no control over your skin, you know? And I think that's why that one episode 
with um, the skinning and the, you know, constant reminders of like the grotesque nature of skin, why that's so effective, because it's just, I mean, it's, it's a little bit on the nose in a certain way, but it's also, <laughs> that's something I just love about body horror is when it it's almost comedy because mm-hmm. it's so on the nose. It's like, oh, she's ripping off her white skin, you know, and it's like, that's literally what she's doing. But it's also like a great evocation of like Frantz Fanon talking about black skin, white masks um, in his famous, famous book of the same name where he talks about code switching and how every black person has to kind of wear this white mask and it creates all this cognitive dissonance. Which actually reminds me of another great uh, story that does turn very horror-ish in the end, like Sorry to Bother You, in which it is sort yes. of about code switching and that does become kind of that does lead to a horrific transformation. I don't want to spoil it, but that leads it to a horrific- It leads to extreme body horror. Yeah. Extreme heart body. And code switching is the kind of thing that leads to the body horror. Like the the one leads to the other. Uh, you First, you lose your identity or you give up part of your identity and then your whole body is taken away from you. And it's it's interesting to me how the transformation sequences in Lovecraft Country use the visual vocabulary that we've seen a lot in recent werewolf stories. Like the becoming white is akin to kind of becoming a wolf almost in a, in a weird way. Yes, that's really true um, because there is a kind of visual trope now for what is what it's like to become a wolf, you know, or to shapeshift, right? It's it's this agonizing thing. Your bones are moving around under your skin. Yeah, there's cracking noises and slurping noises. And that's absolutely how um, the racial transformation goes. And sorry to bother you, very similar where these characters with aspirations to whiteness are, well, anyway, I won't tell you the spoiler, but you should watch it. <laughs> oh it God. is, I couldn't believe it when, because it, it's kind of a twist and it's like, you can't believe that that the film is going to go there. And when it does, it's just so delightful. Um, and same thing happens in Lovecraft Country. There's a lot of moments where I was like, are they really going to go there? Oh, awesome. Okay. Especially in the second episode, there's sort of a two episode arc. The first two episodes are kind of telling one story where some bad guys are trying to bad white cultists, very white, like hyper white cultists are trying to open, you know, a magical doorway and they need to use black bodies to do it, of course. And they are doing this horrific ritual where they're like, you know, opening um, a door and we hear this famous song, Whitey on the Moon. A rat done bit my sister Nell with Whitey on the Moon. Her face and arms began to swell and Whitey's on the moon. I can't pay no doctor bills, but Whitey's on the moon. Ten years from now, I'll be paying still while Whitey's on the moon. You know, the man just up my rent last night, cause Whitey's on the moon. No hot water, no toilets, no lights, but Whitey's on the moon. I wonder why he's up in me, cause Whitey's on the moon. Well, I was already giving him 50 a week, and now Whitey's on the moon. And it's such a great, it's a, it's a funny moment. And it captures the kind of horror of real life white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. also this kind of imaginary, crazy ass, like wizard white supremacy, um, which is, you know, they're all kind of parts of the, I wanted to say they're two sides of the same coin, but <laughs> I think they're like two squares in a Rubik's cube of white supremacy. Yeah, it's it's very effective. I think that in a sense learning about history while having this 
fantasy commentary to provide emotional context makes the history much more powerful. And like I said, I learned actual historical facts from watching from watching Lovecraft Country, which I think is pretty rad. So now we're going to turn to my interview with P. Jelly Clark. All right. Well, welcome. Uh, We have been talking about the nightmare of history. And P. Jelly Clark, you're a history professor, and you've studied post-colonialism and slavery. And I'm wondering how you see this affecting your fictional work. Hi, great to be here. Um, And that's a great question. I like that as a great starting question. Um, (laughs) We just like go right to the... I know, right to it, right? Hello, how are you? No. Um, (laughs) You know, I, I think that we always bring some kind of experience or some kind of knowledge base to what we write, right? Like we're we're impacted by what's around us. And so I I don't know that I at times consciously set out, like I'm going to create something that speaks about this because I just studied this, I just read this. But when I'm thinking things up, when I'm trying to imagine things, those kinds of elements pop in there, right? And so I, I don't know, for instance, when I write something like A Dead Gin in Cairo, right? That series, I wanted to write an interesting story about a lady detective who wears these dapper suits in a steampunk Cairo, right? Or magic uh-huh. or anything. But As you do. inherently, I could not help when I was doing so because of the era I'm talking about. I said, well, this is also going to be an anti-colonialist narrative, right? And it just has to be because it's what I'm talking about. And so I think that, I I guess I like to say that when I'm imagining, I'm also aware, right? That if I'm talking about a certain person, if I'm talking about a certain time period, I'm aware of a lot of the complexities of that period. And I believe that it should be brought up. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that is so interesting about your work, especially in Ring Shout and the Black God's Drums, is that there's just a lot of real history there that I think people may not be familiar with. It's not always like the most obvious bits of history that Americans are taught about in school. And I wonder if you ever find yourself worrying about mixing fantasy together with history and with real history and especially history that people may not have encountered before. So they won't have in their heads like, oh, this is a counterfactual. Do you ever worry that people will get confused and and they'll start not understanding what really happened? Or what's your thought process about that? I think that's a definite possibility. And I've actually seen it happen. I was like, no, that that actually that thing did not happen. Oh, really? Like what? Can you give an example? I can't. It was something to do with... um, with the Black God's Drums, I think, with my discussion of Haiti, you know, destroying the fleet, Leclerc's fleet in this uh, version. I said, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> and I have to <laughs> explain it didn't, but I think that's one of the reasons I run a blog. And like, um, I think after nearly every every type of work like that I tend to do, this is the actual history. And this is, it's part of just saying, this is where the inspiration came from. And this is why I chose to put this in here. And Perhaps this is why I chose to go this direction uh, with it in this counterfactual. It's funny, what I tend to be more concerned with at times is that people may think I'm making light of some certain serious histories. Like when I wrote 
the secret lies of the nine Negro teeth of George Washington, I was worried that people might think I'm making light of slavery by bringing in these fantastical elements, right, of werewolves and what have you, that they might think I'm making light of this very important history. And so I'm, I'm often trying to make certain that when I write, I balance that, right, that I'm some of the times it's whimsical, but at the same time, it's also serious. And so I sometimes worry that in pulling the history into the fantastic, that I, I don't think people will take it less seriously, but I could see someone thinking that I am taking it less seriously by doing so. And so I think that that's always something that uh, I try to keep in mind. How do you do that? How do you balance it out that way? I mean, how do you kind of signal to your audience, actually, no, I'm taking this super seriously? You know, I, I, I can't say that I have a formula. I, I can just say that <laughs> before I must have gotten it right because uh, I haven't had anyone, I haven't had anyone tell me like, you know, hey, I think you're exploiting this or I think you're making light of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of this is also comes from my teaching. It's just things that I've, I've taught myself. Like I said, long before I ever encountered or knew what the uh, term trigger warning meant, for instance, I would teach on slavery. I taught classes on uh, world history or Western Civ. I taught on lynching. And so I remember in teaching these classes, I I would notice uh, my students' reactions when they saw a lynching victim or if we were looking at images from the Holocaust. And I started thinking to myself, you know, perhaps maybe one of these images is enough. I don't need five. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. There's a point at which now I'm doing it as a type of exploitation and shock value when one might get it across. And perhaps I should tell students when this is coming up and we should actually sit and discuss it more than simply going, you know, letting the image just be a thing. Then we go past it. And so, you know, I started thinking more and more about what I depict in the classroom. And I think I bought some of that over into my writing, right? Yeah. Where I, I try to keep that thought as well. So if I'm going to go somewhere and I know this is going to be deep and heavy, I might try to, at some points, bring in other little parts of levity or at least make certain that what I'm doing is germane and relevant to the story and it's not just there to shock. Yeah, I love that idea of kind of thinking about how you contextualize images in a classroom Mm -hmm. and how that kind of helps you think about your audience as you're writing, you know, because it's like you, you've got that real time response from the students like in your head. I want to talk a little bit about Ring Shout specifically because it's coming soon. And it's freaking awesome. And it has a lot of those moments of levity. One of the things I loved about it was that um, Maurice and is it is it Maurice or Maurice or it's, it's Maurice? Yeah, you don't have to. Everybody wants to get really fancy with it. <laughs> yeah, everybody, no, I could imagine like if you're trying to do like the French pronunciation. I know, I know. If it gets translated, that'll be excellent. Yeah. <laughs> so especially like Maurice and her friends, they're like an amazing Scooby gang. Like, and they're constantly like. They have great, you know, one-liners and zingers. And like, I'm wondering if you drew from any real life historical figures or communities to kind of bring them to life. You know, in part, I suppose if you want to say real life communities, it was um, some of them are drawn like bits of people I know or from readings. Like uh, there, there's a way that there's a way that their characters in some way are composites of 
characters that I've gotten from Toni Morrison novels or things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Like there, there are some characters in in Ring Shout whose names literally come from characters from Toni Morrison's novels, but I'll let people nice. figure out who those are. <laughs> there's, there's a great, there's a great sleuthing adventure to do. You know, I, I think they were just composites of of all of that. People I've met, things I've I've read, and back and forth. I think that that kind of pulled them together. The historical backdrop, basically, to the story is the Red Summer of 1919. Can you talk a little bit about why you wanted that specific historical detail to be part of the book? Which, again, like I I was saying Mm -hmm. earlier, I think a lot of the history that you tell in your books is not stuff that typical typically is taught in American schools, or at least not taught enough, right? Like I want to say it's you know I don't want to don't want to get down on on teachers. No. <laughs> yeah. No, so no, I. I would <laughs> it's say, more like the textbooks, yeah, not the teachers. The textbooks yeah. more than anything, and the, what they're often forced to teach. I often get emails from teachers asking, "How can I get this in there?" And they're trying to be really strategic and sneaking these things in here as they could. And I try to help them. <laughs> nice. I said, "Well, we'll all be the fifth column, bringing in all this uh, subversive information into the classroom to the textbooks." When I first envisioned Ring Shout, it was going to be set directly during the summer of uh, 1919, in the Red Summer. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up pushing it forward to 1922, Mm -hmm. right? But the Red Summer still, you're right, the Red Summer still plays this very important role. And I allude to it so much because I think it it shapes the moment, even if we're not talking about that particular year. Mm -hmm. It just shapes this moment of anti-Black violence the rise of the second clan and so much of what is going on during this period, right? It's like we say in history, it's like, you know, years don't mean much, right? For our attitudes and political moments. It's not like, oh, look, we've just ended the progressive era. That's not how it works. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> right. Oh, darn. I we, missed it. We passed through a singularity and now we have no more right. fascism. Yay. Like, yeah, exactly. And so, <laughs> and so these things linger, right? And so, there's a way that it's 1922, but the shadow of 1919 still looms over everything that's happening. And did you see that as a parallel to uprisings around Black Lives Matter? Or, you know, were you conscious about that? Or were you just kind of, no, this is just another interesting historical moment where we saw that kind of violence? No, I can't say that I was thinking about that because I was first thinking of the story in 2015. Okay, so no. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, 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 I can't, I think... I can't remember if the, the phrase Black Lives Matter because that was more so Ferguson. So it's yeah, it's later. So we're just starting. And so I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to say like I could say no because but I'm speaking consciously. But again, I think we're always, always pulling on things from the environment. And I can't tell you how many times I would always say I, I follow Chuck D of Public Enemy. He used to have a line that said, uh, when I get mad, I put it down on a pad. Mm-hmm. And of course, I don't know how many times something has happened in the larger world and I sit down and I start jotting sounds, something fantastic to explain it, right? Some story or so forth. And I don't think that happened with Ring Shout, but I think I would be remiss to say that what was happening is I'm thinking all this up in 2015 and 2016 didn't impact me. I mean, Beyonce's video formation impacted me heavily. And that video was definitely pulling on the various threads that were going on at that time. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, it's like my reminder of, oh, since we're all academics here, um, <laughs> I was thinking of, you know, uh, Hegel's uh, master slave uh, narrative. Right. And he's, he's coming up with this whole dialectic uh, during the 
Haitian Revolution and a lot of, you know, people who study Hegel say, oh, no, he he wasn't even talking about the actual master slave uh, dynamic, dialectic of the Haitian Revolution, you know, and other I think people like I think it was um, his writer, Susanna Bucks Morris was like, yeah, the Haitian Revolution was happening. He writes about a master slave uh, dynamics and it had no impact. I find that. Hard. Yeah. And of course, he would have been thinking about it. Right. Whether he wrote it down or not, they said, I, I simply find it. She's like, Hegel knew. Yeah. I mean, the entire world was thinking about slavery, especially at that time, because that was the moment when countries were starting to finally reject it, or at least kind of push it over into other places. And so all this to say that, you know, whether or not I directly did so, I have to imagine that there was some impact in those early days for the type of story that I would end up writing. So and also Ring Shout is now a Hegelian narrative. So, (laughs) Boy, isn't it? So to return to the Toni Morrison theme for a minute, she has a, an amazing collection of essays called Whiteness in the Black Imagination, um, mm-hmm. where she talks a lot about how sort of looking back into the 19th century in American writing and then up through the present, she talks about how whiteness is kind of portrayed as monstrous over and over again in stories in the United States. And that's just all over the place in Ringshout, where, of course, the white people are literal monsters. Well, the, the Ku Kluxes are anyway. And there's a couple of things I wanted to ask about with the white monsters. Um, the first one was one of the threads running through this novella is that so we have these terrifying, scary, actual monsters. But then at the same time, we have ordinary white people who are watching the movie Birth of a Nation. Mm -hmm. And both of those things are portrayed, I would say, with equal menace. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, about how Birth of a Nation fits into this horror story. You know, one of the things I think going back to one of your earlier questions about my concerns of bringing history into fantasy, one of my key concerns with this was that I would make the assertion that uh, the racism of the Klan was simply due to some kind of mystical monsters, right? And in doing so, you basically lose human agency, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, and you kind of you kind of let everyone off the hook. Yeah. Oh, you turned into a zombie, so you couldn't help right. it. Yeah. Yeah, you couldn't help it, right? And so I wrestled with that heavily. And this is one of the reasons I made this distinction where people can turn into these monsters, but they have to allow themselves to be turned into them, right? They, they always have a chance to turn around and not be this, and not be this way. But they, they have to participate in what's being done to them, right? They have to be willing agents of it. Mm-hmm. And it takes a while to, to get to that, which is why, you know, there are the differences I make between a person who's a clan member and a person who's been transformed into this monster uh, as a Ku Klux. Mm-hmm. And Maurice wrestles with whether or not there's really any distinction, right? She's wrestling with this. Uh, but you have these other heads who are like, yeah, every sinner has a chance to get right. Mm-hmm. Right? And so there are these differences. And part of that, again, was to discuss the agencies that we can all play in these systems, right? That we're not just pulled along by it. And Birth of a Nation just figured so prominently because, for one, in my, you talk about something that comes out of my out of my academic life, I teach a class called Slavery and Film. And we start with Birth of a Nation, right? Because it's the beginning of modern cinema. And here is one of the most racist films ever made that is about slavery, that's about reconstruction, that is about anti-Black violence. It's about the rise of the first clan, but it's made and it precipitates the rise of the second clan. And so 
it just became central to the story and world building that I wanted to do. And a lot of the ways I describe Birth of a Nation and that I did take from aspects of the historical record, the way it seems to like almost mesmerize people is how many would describe the impact it had on moviegoers, right? Uh, there's an, there was like, I have, a, I have a thing in there where I think one of the characters talks about a man seeing Birth of a Nation and pulling out a gun and shooting at the screen right? Because he wants to stop this black character who's really a white man in blackface from chasing this young white woman. And that actually came from a Florida newspaper of the early 1900s, right? When the movie was out. Yeah. Uh, that a white man did pull out a gun and start shooting in the theater, started shooting the screen. And, you know, and I would think about what does that mean? What, why would someone do that? And I thought about the very medium of film being so different at the time period. Like we take it for granted now, but you can imagine the birth of a nation before this had been books, it had been a play, but when it became a film, when it became this two-dimensional image that was larger than life, how that could, it would lead people to like, you know, have these emotions when they were watching it. And some of them would faint, right? It almost seemed like they were, again, mesmerized. Like it was a spell being cast on them. I think you see where I'm going here. Yeah, no, it has this, it, it does have this kind of magical status because, and it's also, I mean, as you said, it's one of the earliest films that has a huge cast. I mean, it was really intended to be, it was kind of the special effects blockbuster of its day. Yeah, the musical score that it has. No one's done this before with the ride, you know, when the ride of the clan and all this, the shots, yeah. And so I always compare it. I said, when I tell students, I said, if you're a magic, they're like, how could anybody, because they're looking at the movie and they're like, this right. is cheesy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how could anybody, I was like, all I could think of is imagine if we had VR today, like you were on the holodeck, like you stepped onto it, right? And you were just, wow, this is all three-dimensional. You would be blown away, mm-hmm. right? And this is all I can tell you to people at the time, how they were blown away. And yet, when I talk about it, I say not everyone was blown away, right? Like people didn't go in this and see like, oh yeah, that's great. I'm blown away. <laughs> No, there were protests. Yeah, the the NAACP protested. Exactly. And so, you know, we do a lot of we do a lot of theory and media theory and communications, you know, and whether or not uh, how media impacts you and whether you're a participant. And what I tell them is this is evidence that you have to be a participant. You have to bring something to this. Right. It wasn't that people went to see this and they were simply injected with this hate. They were bringing these anti-black notions with them. They were bringing these ideologies because these ideologies permeated so much of early 1900s America that all Birth of a Nation did was crystallize it and give it something, give it some kind of form, and it allows the second clan to be born, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Second clan is directly birthed from Birth of a Nation. And it becomes much more massive than the first clan ever was. It geographical... expansion is huge, whereas the first clan was during Reconstruction was mostly in the South. This one, there are clan chapters in, you know, in Maine, New England, in mm-hmm. Seattle. The hate that the uh, enemies list is extended now to immigrants, to Jews. In fact, it's the um, it's the lynching of a, a Jewish man in Georgia that is kind of like the impetus for the second clan to come about. Right. And so the second clan is just on many levels, just a much more monstrous version. And I guess knowing that history, I think, you know, it's just seemed ripe to tell some fantastic tale out of it. Yeah, that's so interesting because what you're describing is how 
a movie which is an inaccurate representation of history, a fantastical representation of history actually changes history. Right. And which is kind of a little bit what Ring Shout is trying to do by, again, kind of retelling that story and making explicit the monstrousness of it. One of the things I loved in the novella is how this is not a spoiler, but like the monsters have a lot to do with mouths and consumption. And there's this moment where we see a bunch of white people at a whites only barbecue joint and they're eating this like magical meat that's like covered in mouths. And if you're you're a vegan, you should skip past this part. (laughs) Actually, maybe if you're a vegan, it'll be even more powerful, right? Because you'll really appreciate like the horror of like what they're doing. But it's like this nasty consumption, um, just like the consumption of this of this pop culture is this kind of nasty, infectious, like, yeah, you got, you got all the metaphors. (laughs) I'm, you know, I'm kind of a fan of this kind of horror. So almost like you're an academic who's used to like looking at these things. Yeah. Who's written a whole dissertation about. Yeah. That's what it feels like. Like (laughs) My My deep background. Yeah. Well, and as I, as I told you, when I, when we talked on email, like I was so excited about your work because I was like, wow, this proves my thesis and my dissertation. (laughs) It all fits together. Um, so that was very exciting. Um, I guess like to finish up, I wanted to just ask when you're sitting down to write, I know that you are, a lot of times you're trying to just spin a fun swashbuckling story and you definitely do, but do you have any kind of political agenda? Like if you could, you know, sum it up, like, do you, are you trying to kind of be the the good version of um, Birth of a Nation? I don't know what that would be, like the social yeah. justice. I don't, I don't, know, I don't, I don't really know if they want to see that one. But no, I mean, you know, I, I think I wrote something a while back and I said, everything I do is obviously political. I don't, I don't think there's anything I write that doesn't have some kind of political motive, right? So if I'm writing works like, like I was saying with Adegion in Cairo, yeah, I want to tell this wonderful tale. That's my, first and foremost, I want to tell this story. But I'm also well aware that, and having a, a queer woman character as the main as the main lead, right? And having these anti-colonial narratives within there. I'm uh, in in set in deciding to set a steampunk story outside of Victorian England, right? I'm I'm immediately engaging in politics, and I'm, yes, I'm doing it quite on purpose, right? I I want people to have these different perspectives and these different viewpoints, and so I, I think the same with Ring Shout, right? It's I like, I don't know if I can define it and say like, oh, wow, this is my exact thing that I want people to take away because I, because in part of me, I, I want people to see it and I want to see what they come away with. But sure, yeah. um, I, I won't shy away that I'm trying to say, yes, uh, anti-Black racism was monstrous and evil. It many times consumed many people's lives, many Black lives. And, you know, here is someone standing against it, right? So it's, you know, sometimes we can't do much about those things that happened in the past. And so sometimes it's interesting to give ourselves a hero or a heroine who's standing up against these things, perhaps in ways that we sometimes wish we dreamed that we wish we could have, right? That we could have done these things. And so there's a way in that when we rewrite these histories this way, it's empowering in its own way. Yeah, that's right. And also there's something really satisfying about saying, no, really, like these people are actually monsters. Like in <laughs> right. case you were wondering, yeah. no, really. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's just, monsters. there's no subtlety here. <laughs> like, right, yeah. Um, which is delightful. 
We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about slavery and film. I was just curious if in your class about slavery and film, if you taught um, I Walked with a Zombie. No, I haven't. Dude, oh my God. Have you watched yeah, I it? I have not. No, I have not. Now I have to. I oh mean, my God. Funny, you say this, by the way. I was just doing an interview on the Washington Post because they were talking about the movie Antebellum. Mm-hmm. And I was saying it's really funny that often there aren't that many movies on slavery, right? Uh, even if we're seeing a slight uptick. But now I've been lately thinking of expanding beyond just the movies on slavery, because I don't just do them here. I do movies um, like I do uh, Quemada or Burn. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's by Ponte Corvo. It's what he made after the Battle of Algiers. Oh, oh wow. Yeah he, yeah, he made it right after that. Marlon Brando's in it. So he's. it's an alternative type of retelling of part of the Haitian Revolution. It's just interesting. Um, but he considers it like the classic movie that uh, no one talked about, but it was his movie, you know, his what he really wanted to do more than anything. Wow, that's super I know, and he gets married because, you know, Battle of Algiers happened. Right. So I show that. I show a Brazilian movie called Quilombo. I show a, a movie from Cuba called The Last Supper from Revolutionary Cuba. And so we, we kind of dive around the world. And so really recently, I started thinking maybe I should show some films that are not exactly about slavery, but certainly are carrying the motif of slavery. Mm-hmm. So, oh, Interesting. I did this with, there's a 1980s really surreal film called Brother from Another Planet. Dude, I love that movie. None That's... of my students were completely like, what? Yeah, I wonder did, I wonder if it doesn't age well, maybe. That's, or... that's one thing. It's so very, it's so 80s, right? And yeah. yet it's a neo-slave narrative, even though it's about space. I've thought about other things. And so the other film I showed, I showed, I basically said, we're going to watch Get Out. But we're going to watch Get Out as a slave narrative. So I want you yeah. to the last thing we're watching. So you guys have watched all the films on slavery. You guys have uh, read all the articles. You have read all the theories. I want you to apply that when you watch Get Out. And those students dissected that movie on a level where I was like, wow, I was writing down notes. Like, okay, yeah, he does call, he refers to like, the, he refers to Bucks, mm-hmm. right? The deer is black man. And then like, he's killed with the Bucks antlers. Hadn't noticed that. <laughs> Oh, nice. And so they were just catching all types of things. Like the young white girl, they were like, she's how she's pure and proper. They related her to Scarlett O'Hara. And they mm-hmm. were just like, coming up with all these things, you know, from there. And, you know, in Get Out, I had bought up, I introduced them to the idea of night doctors, right? Um, yeah. I, I picked that up from, I didn't say this in the interview, but a lot of stuff comes from the ex-slave narratives where I first got some of the ideas for this, the WPA mm-hmm. narratives where I first heard about the Klan as monsters. That's the first time I read about that. Ex-slaves talking about the first Klan, wearing horns and calling them Hanks. And it's also where I first came across ideas of night doctors. And so in Get Out, when the first character in the beginning is snatched away mm-hmm. to then be experimented upon, I was like, yeah, that's that's the night doctors. <laughs> yeah, and it really good. is. There's so much medical yeah. horror in this so genre much. too, Yeah, um, which I that's one of the things that I think is super interesting. But my my only plug, I'll give you my tiny plug for I Walked with a Zombie. It's, it's a Jacques Tourner film from the early 40s, and it's set on St. Sebastian. 
And it has some of the only recorded music from some of the like of the Creole performers there. Yeah. And that was something that Tournaire really wanted to capture. But it's it's about post-colonial relationships and Mm. how the ex-slaves have turned the white daughter of the former plantation owners into a zombie And how like the matriarch, the white matriarch is trying to kind of integrate into like Mm -hmm. local religion in order to kind of deal with this. But it's super, I mean, for a a movie named I Walked with a Zombie, it's pretty fucking smart. And it's, it's really. I'm looking at it now on my phone. I'm looking, I see Tor had a uh, write up on it by someone. So yeah. Oh yeah, that's good. Yeah, no, it's like a, it's definitely one of those movies that I think people kind of disregard because the title is so silly, but like, it's really, it's a really great story of revenge and it's definitely anti-colonial and the white characters are generally kind of awful you know what I mean? They're not sort of portrayed as like, oh, mm-hmm. poor them. They were just misled. It's like, and this is interesting because I actually do talk about the notion of the zombie and its role in slavery that many people have talked about, right? The zombie yeah. as within uh, within Haitian culture as a symbol of the enslaved person, right? This person, the fear that some of them would have that they would be turned into this person who continues to serve even in death, right? They continue mm-hmm. from life is carried over to death and how that was so unnerving. And interestingly, I've seen some people do some great comparisons uh, to golems in mm-hmm. this notion of the ever working. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Golem. Yeah, but the golem is a symbol of strength, not mm-hmm. a symbol of subjugation. You right. know, like it's a pretty different. Yeah, I mean, I, I get yeah, it. I get it is yeah. similar, but it's also it's yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how people are interpreting these things, right? These notions of uh, of the zombie. Because then the zombie, interestingly, in Haiti, then it becomes a symbol of strength after slavery. Because now it's something you can do onto someone else. Right. And that's what I Walked with a Zombie is all about. And it's considered to be the first like American zombie movie. And it's so funny to see it be all about like kind of revenge on this white supremacist yeah, family. Yeah, and in America, like I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of our zombies are white people. Like we have a lot of a lot yeah, of white we, yeah. zombies. <laughs> well, you know, I think I think that became yeah, I think it became like after zombies became popular here. Yeah, we America has redone the zombie. It, it's become something beyond whatever it was before. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's simultaneously appropriation, but also like fear of of revenge. You know, it's like oh well, that you know these people that we've you know, subjugated are going to do this to us now. Here, yeah, here's something. Here's here. Here will be a great academic paper of uh, the Borg. Yeah. <laughs> 23rd, 23rd century zombies and fear of uh, loss of identity and uh, communism. <laughs> well, you know, Toby Buckles novel Sly Mongoose is all about um, yeah. like post-colonialism and zombies. So yeah, and like yeah, and yeah. it's also about nanotechnology and space and stuff. So it's like space zombies and post-colonialism so where can people find out more about your work yeah you can find out more on my blog uh which is basically pjellyclark.com my name and you can you know find me on twitter where i sometimes say things at the same thing at pjellyclark awesome and you have a new novel coming right i do after ring shout we have the my first actual debut novel after all these novellas 
uh, full-length novel called A Master of Jin, which is uh, the follow-up to A Dead Jin in Cairo and The Haunting of Tramcar 015. Awesome. So I'm super excited. There's so much anti-colonial snark in there. You know, you know. <laughs> I am here for anti-colonial snark. You have been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. We are found everywhere that fine podcasts can be downloaded or streamed or whatever the heck you're doing with your modern technology full of ghosts and demons. You can also leave a review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts because that helps people find it and it drives away the demons. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. We give you lots of audio extras and cool essays and writing excerpts of works that we're in progress on. And you can follow us on Twitter. We're at OOAC pod on Twitter. And thank you so much to our amazing producer, Veronica Simonetti at women's audio mission. And thank you to Chris Palmer for the music. And we will be back in your feed in two weeks. All right. Bye. Bye.